Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. All right, I want to talk to you this morning about Jesus, my King, or for my kingdom. From verses 1 through 21 of John 6. But before we dive into the message, I want to lead your mind to think about something for just a moment. I want to ask you to consider maybe what you've tried to forget about for a time. But I want to ask you to consider what is the biggest problem, the greatest need, or the highest challenge that you're facing right now. Just take a moment and consider these things. What is the biggest problem, the greatest need, or the highest challenge that you are facing right now? And here's what I want you to do. I want you to just hold it. Don't don't let it interfere with what we're talking about today, but just in in an act of imagery, I just want you to hold it in your hand this morning in an open way. And I want you to ask God to speak to it because I believe God wants to speak to that point in your life this morning. And if you'll ask him, I believe he'll be faithful to do that. And he wants to give you some insight into who he is. He's going to give you some insight into who you are. And he's going to show you how he wants to work in your life. Okay? Here's what I want you to walk away with today. Jesus entrusts himself to those who believe in him and receive him as Lord. Jesus entrusts himself to those who believe in him and receive him as Lord. Now, there's a cheese warning this morning. I'm not going to lie to you. And when you hear it, you're going to know what I'm talking about. I, I, I want to walk through the message with four principles this morning. But the principles are going to be called, are you ready? Life points. Can I do that? Is that okay? I'm going to. But it's two words. If I were using the title of our church, I'd just put it as one word. So there's a big difference there. The point I want to make, and I'll try not to overuse that word this morning, is that these are principles within which God wants you to understand him and to affect the way you live your life so that you can see what he's doing in you and all around you. Let's go to verse 1 of John chapter 9 and let's look together as we read. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Let's stop there for a moment. I want us to take a walk 
through this passage today, this, this story, if you will. And I want us to see how Jesus creates a situation, a scenario, so that he can speak in to a life. And that's what we see. When we see the context of this passage in the first couple of verses, we see that Jesus is now being followed by a large crowd pretty much everywhere he goes. But the reason they are following him is not because they are interested in Jesus. They're following him, John tells us, because of the signs that they've seen him do. And so we see that they're not so much interested in Jesus as much as they are what they can watch him do. The entertainment value, if you will. They were interested in the work of God, but not in the God of the work. And we've begun to see this in John's writing. And so it tells us that Jesus went up on the mountain and he sat down. Now this wasn't necessarily an act of Jesus because he was tired. But when Jesus sat down with his disciples, he assumed a posture of teaching. That, that's how uh, the rabbis taught in that day, and that's what they would have understand, understood. Hey, we're going to take a rest maybe, but more than anything, Jesus is posturing himself. He's got something he wants to teach us. And that's what John is saying to you and I today as well in describing this time. It's a season of Passover. Now, Passover is the highest festival of the year. It's the holiest week of the year, and it is a week of, of festivities that are given uh, that all center around the Passover meal. And the reason that they take the Passover meal was to remember the mighty work of God in his salvation in the death angel that passed over in Egypt when the children of Israel were still enslaved. And so God told them when they came out of Israel, every year you celebrate Passover to remember the mighty work that I have done in saving you. So fast forward thousands of years later, these people are still remembering this observance to remember God's saving work in their life. And that's what they come to this season with and even to this area to celebrate. This kind of helps us understand their mindset and the expectations of the people. They're looking for God's salvation because they're remembering the way God has saved his people. It also helps us understand the impetus of Jesus' teaching. In the midst of a context of people looking for God's salvation, Jesus is going to point them to the only one that can save. That's important for us to understand. And so what does he do? He asked Philip, the, uh, John writes, he looks up on the crowds and he asked to Philip, Philip, where will we buy food to feed all of these people? Well, you can only imagine Philip's initial response was, ha, um, uh, oh, um, you know, the immediacy of the shock value for Philip was just simply that, 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 he wasn't really sure, is, is he serious or is he not? John gives us some insight as to why Jesus asked the question. Verse 6 says, Jesus knew what he was going to do, what he was going to teach, but he wanted, John, uh, excuse me, he wanted Philip and he wanted his disciples to understand what he was doing. And so he asked the question to test Philip, right? Well, here's the test for Philip. Where will you look for help and for provision? That's the test. That's the test that he puts before him. Um, I don't want to be too hard on Philip, but he didn't do very well on this test. Uh, he, he didn't do very well at all on the test. As a matter of fact, he looks at the number of people and he dismisses the impossibility of the size of the need. 
He says, man, we, we could take 200 days worth of pay from any person and it still wouldn't buy enough food to give each person a bite, let alone to satisfy their real hunger. And so he looks at the size of the problem and he dismisses it. And then right after that, Andrew, another disciple, kind of takes the other spectrum and he says this. He points to a small portion of food that they found with probably one of the young boys that are aiding them in their work. And he says, man, we've got a basket here that's got five rolls and a couple of crusty sardines in it. But that's nowhere near big enough to deal with the issue that we have at hand. And so here's what we have. We have two people with two different perspectives. And these two perspectives demonstrate to us how often we fail the same test that Philip and Andrew and all of the disciples failed when we focus on everything other than what Jesus wants us to see. Jesus didn't just give a test so that they could fail. He gave a test because he wanted to teach them a lesson. Friends, here's the first point that I want you to see today. God tests us because he loves us. We must remember this. God tests us because he loves us and he wants to teach us to look to him first at all times, in all situations, and in all circumstances. Now, let me explain a test for just a moment here. A test should never be confused with a temptation. A test should never be confused with a temptation. Here's the difference. A test reveals what's inside of us. A temptation attempts to lead us into sin. And the Bible tells us very clearly that God never tempts people. That he cannot tempt them. And he condemns anyone who does become a temptation to them. Jesus actually warns us against entering into temptation, but rather we should flee from it because of where it leads. But a test, on the other hand, has a way of revealing what is in us. You see, Jesus was not wondering what his disciples were thinking. The Bible tells us Jesus knows the heart of every man. As a matter of fact, in the gospel accounts, when Jesus confronts the Pharisee, they usually ask a question and Jesus answers the motivation out of which that question came. Why? Because he didn't just hear their question, he saw their heart. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's looking at the heart of Philip and Andrew and his disciples. And Jesus is looking at your heart today too. And what he wants to do is offer a test. So he can reveal what's in you, not to him, but hear me, friends, to us, to us. And here's the impetus of his lesson. It's found in Matthew 6, 33. It simply says this, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God. See, that's what he wanted Philip to get. Jesus knew Philip would fail this test. He knew Andrew would. And he knew any of the other disciples surely would have also failed this test had they been the ones that answered the question. But what he wanted to get to was not their failure, but rather the lesson that he wanted to teach. To seek first the kingdom of God. Jesus tests us to show us what is in our heart so that we can turn away 
from unbelief. We can turn away from any false idol in which we've placed our hope. And we can seek his kingdom first. And always, at all times, in all of our life. Friends, the reason I had you begin the way I began today, by thinking of the biggest challenge, hardship, or need that you have in your life, because every problem, every need, every challenge within which you face in your life, no matter the size, is always a test. It's always a test. A test. And every test has two wrong responses that threaten to cause us to miss God's work. First of all, when we focus on the size of the problem, as Philip did. And second of all, when we focus on the insufficient resources that we have to address the problem. You see, when the problem looms large and resources seem woefully insufficient, never count God out. Never count God out. Always seek God first. That's where he begins. Always look to God first. God wants our hearts and our minds to be set on him so that with our problems or with our lack of resources, we look to him and we simply ask, God, you still holding it? What are you doing here? What are you doing here? Jesus wants his followers to seek him first. At all times and in all circumstances. But especially right here. Right now. Especially there. You see, a resource that is sufficient to meet a need does not automatically mean that you can meet that need or that you should meet that need. God regularly uses our resources, our treasure in life to address the needs and challenges of our life. But he never wants us to look to them first without considering him. He doesn't want us to do that. But, but friends, listen, just because your treasure or just because your resource of your life can meet a need never means that God automatically wants to meet that need in the way that you may want to meet it without looking to him first. God wants us to look to him first. Listen, friends, an insufficient amount of treasure or resource is never a sign of lack of provision any more than an abundance of treasure or resource is the guarantee of the meeting of one's needs. You know why that's true? Because Jesus is our treasure and our treasure is never our hope. That's why. And that's what Jesus wants Philip and Andrew and his disciples to learn and that's what Jesus wants us to understand today. God wants us to submit all of our life to him, to use as he wills, but to ask him first how it is that he wants to work. Friends, let me ask you this. Have you ever measured a problem and become overwhelmed by the impossibility of it? Most of us have. If you haven't, fasten your seatbelt. Because life is right in front of you. 
Have you ever measured your lack of resources and found them overwhelmingly insufficient for the demand that's in front of you? If you haven't, buckle your seatbelt because life may occur even today. Most of us can identify with both of these perspectives with situations in our life. And here's God's purpose. Here's God's purpose for you. No matter how your resources align with your needs, he wants you to focus on Jesus first in all situations. That's what he wants you to see. When our heart is not set on Christ, we will let any measure of life overwhelm the reality of our God every time. That's always a wrong, an unhelpful, and a bad equation. Are you looking to God? Are you looking to him first in all the situations of your life? Because if you're not, here's what we do. When we don't look to Jesus first, we disregard God's will for our life. We say, God, I can handle this. I don't need you. What we're saying is, I've got my own will. I don't need yours. Don't do that. Look to Jesus first so you can, first of all, honor God and his will as first in your life. When we fail to honor or to seek God first, we weaken our relational trust in his way. You ever heard of a concept called muscle memory? Doing the same pattern over and over and over and over again? In, in, in the sport of baseball, so much of hitting is a matter of muscle memory. It's a matter of teaching the, the body to move together at the right time to bring the bat to the point of the ball to maximize power on contact and put it where you want it to go. Any sport understands muscle memory. And the thing about muscle memory is this, is that you become so familiar with it that it becomes second nature to you. You just do it out of reflex instead of having to train. But what happens is if we don't seek Jesus first, we weaken our relational trust by training ourselves to look somewhere else or to something else. Another negative effect is that we neglect God when we lessen the priority of his work in leading us. God never gives anything to us to say, hey, I gave this to you so you won't need me anymore. And friends, when we neglect seeking him first, we lessen the priority of his work in us by heightening the priority of our work for us. That's always a temptation to us. And Jesus warns us, Woe to anyone who leads another into temptation. And that applies for us leading ourselves there too, right? Jesus shows us that God loves us and he wants to walk with us daily. And every test he gives reveals our first love. So that we can turn to him in repentance. Find his forgiveness, his healing, and his leading. And seek his will. And deepen our trust in him. That's our first point today. God tests us because he loves us. And he teaches us to look to him first. Let's continue reading in verse 10. And find out what they're doing. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, 
he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Let's pause there for a moment. As John gives us more details, what he does is he basically just kind of peels uh, the situation open and gives us a, a deeper insight to it. And he tells us that roughly 5,000 men were seated on the grass that day. We can estimate that in their formulations of counting in that day, there could have been anywhere from 10 to 20,000 or more people sitting on the grass that day by their own estimations. Why is that? Because typically they would count the head of the family and that is the way that they would estimate the number of people there's a mass even if there's only 5,000 there's a mass of people and upon this mass of people we for the first time see the real need that Philip and Andrew saw and 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 yea if we cast any condemnation on them at the beginning of these few verses to go why couldn't they just believe and Philip goes "Uh uh-huh who's not believing now you just got to see the bigness of the problem didn't you You see, the easiest problem for me to solve is yours, right? The easiest problem for you to solve is someone else's, right? So, especially when we don't understand the full size of it, but we're getting a little insight into the true need. And to be quite honest, I think the way John writes this, he writes it so that he can shock the reader in much the same way that the disciples were shocked when they turned around and looked at the number of people sitting on the grass. Just to give us an understanding. And then, to be quite honest, we're a little shocked at the basket too, right? Five rolls and two crusty sardines. That, that's, I, I say it that way because if you understand the food of their day, it's not like it was sea bass. You know what I'm saying? Where three people could eat off of one filet and... All be filled. No, this was a boy. His mother had fixed him a lunch and said, be home after dark, right? And that's what they had to work with. But when the things in our life are heaviest and when they're the hardest, it's most important to remember and to cling to this. Are you ready? We'll quote Jesus from Matthew 19, verse 26. What is impossible with man is possible with God. But with God, some things are possible. I think you have a cheat sheet on the board that says that's not right. Let me try one more time. But with God, all things are possible. All things are possible friends. That's what Jesus wants you to hear today. That's what he's teaching to his disciples. John gives another insight into God's character that's very important for us to see and remember. When they were commanded to serve them, they were not advised to exercise restraint or caution. Did you hear that? I didn't either. It wasn't there. And we shouldn't impose it on the text either. But it says that Jesus took what they had and he gave thanks Who did he give thanks to? He gave thanks to the Father who blessed it. And then he told them to what? Serve it. He blessed it, and then he commanded them to serve it. And here's what he said. 
It tells us that John, uh, John tells us that they ate as much as they wanted. And here's how much they ate. Their fill. How many of them walked away hungry? Goose eggs. Not one. None. No one walked away hungry this day because every person ate as much as they wanted their fill. That's the way John describes this for us. You see, this is how Jesus works. This is where we see an insight into the nature, into the character of the very God that is confronting us with his own being today. He is a God that satisfies completely. He even dares to tell us in Psalm 37, 4, that when our heart is set on him, he gives us the desires of our heart. He completely satisfies to our fill. He doesn't leave us hungry. He doesn't leave us wondering when we seek him, when we set our hearts on him first, but rather he satisfies us. Jesus teaches his disciples in this moment is what he's wanting to teach you and I today, that God is good beyond your imagination and he is generous beyond your measure. Do you get that with this today? What you put in front of God this morning, do you believe? Will you believe? I think is what John is wanting to confront us with. Will you believe that God is good beyond your imagination and that he is generous beyond your measure? That's what the disciples are immediately confronted with. Have you learned these lessons? Are you living differently because of these lessons? I I can't tell you exactly how many times I've learned these lessons in my life, but I can tell you this. It's always one I must regularly remember. When God demonstrates his power and his glory, it's, it's always in a way, it's always with a means, and it's always to an extreme that causes memory loss over the previous problem that brought you to that point. And what I want to say to you today is that's what God wants to do with this. What you're holding in front of him. This leads me to our second life point today. God demonstrates his power that he might grow our knowledge of him so that we can worship him in greater awe of glory and intimacy of truth. You want to know why God works in your life? It's not just to meet the need. Yes, listen, when God is glorified, every good will come to you. But God works in our life to grow our knowledge of him so that when we worship him, we can worship him with a greater glory and a greater intimacy of truth. See, some of you are staring at the size of your problem and your need today and you're overwhelmed by it. But I need you to know this, God's not overwhelmed by it. He's not overwhelmed by it now and he's never going to be overwhelmed by it. Why? Because it's not bigger than him. He wants us to learn today, don't look at the problem before or more than you look to him. You see, God's power is not in what he's given. That's what we think so much. Man, we can't do this. The need's too big and the resource too insufficient. God's power is not in what's given to him, but in what he gives and how it is that he uses it. At several moments in our life, in our marriage, Kristen and I have had financial need that was significantly beyond what we could provide. Now, if I'm being honest with you, I'll tell you this. Some of them were because of stupid decisions, right? And those are all on me, just to be quite frank with you. Some of it were because of surprises that came against us. 
I mean, things that just showed up. I don't know where they came from, but woohoo, they're here and they're real, right? You, you know about those two, don't you? Let me tell you about the third one, though. Some of our financial need in life has been because of what God wanted to do and what God told us to do. And there wasn't any way with our bank account, I'm talking about finances right now, or with the potential of what it could do to meet what God was telling us to do. And I could give you stories from all three categories of how God met those needs and it didn't cost us a penny. Why? Because God, he wants to grow our knowledge of him that when we worship him, it might be in greater power and glory and greater intimacy and truth of how he works. You see, the issue of God's power working in your life is never your ability for God, but your availability to God. It's not your ability to do for God, but it's your availability before or unto God. God works in many ways, and most, most honestly, we'll never see until we collect the crumbs afterwards. Sometimes God works by shrinking the problem or the need. Problems so often get skewed out of proportion because of the way that I see them in my life. And I I would assume in many ways this is true for you too. It's amazing how many times that I've grown anxious over a problem. And when I finally take it to the Lord, he says this to me. Are you ready? Lane, you're anxious over a problem that's nowhere near you. If you will take the binoculars of life off of your eyes and look, you will see that you can't even see the issue anymore. And you know what? God changes my perspective when I do that. Sometimes, sometimes I get anxious because problems seem so large. And God says this, Lane, that problem is not what you've made it to be. If you'll take your eyes off of the microscope, you'll see yet again, it's not near as big as you've made it to be. And he's right, because I was looking at the problem and not at the solution, him. Often in today's analogy, we need to do this. God wants to tell us, you need to take those virtual reality goggles off because life is not what you've conjured it up to be. And you need to look at my word, which is truth, and I will define what life really is for you. That's how God speaks. Sometimes he shrinks the problem by giving us a true perspective of it. And he shows his power by shrinking our needs. Sometimes God stretches the resources, doesn't he? One of my favorite stories, Deuteronomy 29.5. Here's what he says. I've led, you in the, uh, I've led you 40 years in the wilderness. And here's your testimony to me. Your clothes have not worn out and your shoes haven't worn off your feet. They're on, the, they're on the banks of the Jordan River about to cross into the promised land. And somebody says, how do you know that God brought you to this shore? How do you know that God's led you through this water to the river? And God says, look down. When was the last time you bought a pair of shoes? When was the last time you picked out your own blouse? It's been almost 40 years And friends, shoes are important when you're wandering around the wilderness for 40 years, right? Sometimes God doesn't shrink the need. Sometimes he stretches the resource. 
He makes things go where they ordinarily would not go. And so often, I promise you, not in the 40 years had any woman looked at the other and said, I love that blouse. That's beautiful. I love, where'd you get that? They just hadn't thought about it. Guys don't talk about that kind of thing. Well, they do, but not out loud. Often, though, often, God shrinks the problem by stretching the resource. And that's what Jesus did in the feeding of the 5,000. See, God created a big problem because big problems lead to big lessons. And big problems require great power to solve them. And that's the power that God has for our lives. God brings glory and truth from any problem. But big problems produce big glory when we look to God in the midst of them. God demonstrates his power, friends, to grow our understanding of who he is so we can worship him in a greater awe of his glory and a greater intimacy of his being. He is truth. He is true. Don't miss this. Don't miss this because he, you're, you're going to ask, okay, so how do I apply that point, that principle to my life right here? Here's how I want you to apply it. What did Jesus command that they do? He blessed it and then he said what? Serve it. Serve it. Here's what I want you to see from this. He wanted them to apply their resources to the need at hand after they looked to him first, no matter how insignificant the resources seemed. The ridiculously insignificant resource that is offered to God for his purpose will always bring big results in your life. Friends, God returned 12 overfilled baskets after they had all eaten to their fill. Do you know when the disciples saw that the resource to meet the need would be sufficient to fill the need? Not before they served it. When they collected the baskets afterwards. When they collected, picked up the crumbs it says this, they, they collected 12 filled baskets. In my estimations, and I'm not a mathematician, but that's somewhere in the ballpark of 100 times what they started with, they ended with. Because they started with five rolls and two crusty sardines. That doesn't fill a basket, friends. But these baskets, when they got them back, 12 of them to be exact, were overflowing with the crumbs. Left over. Left over. The leftovers of God's work in your life will be a hundred times greater than what you need him to do to completely satisfy and fill your life. You catching that? Are you applying it to this? Jesus said, serve them with what you have and watch me do what I can do. And that's what God wants you to do. See, when we seek him first, we understand his will for our life. And when we obey by faith, we follow him. And that's where his power comes to its greatest fruition in our life. I can't tell you for sure what God's plan for some time is in your life today. Whether he's going to shrink the need or whether he's going to stretch the resource. Or, or whether he's even going to shrink the need by stretching the resource. But I can and I will tell you that 
that when God works, it will be something for you to behold. It will be something for you to give him honor and glory. And if you will take the time to pick up the crumbs, you will find that your need and, and your help was was not anywhere near God's provision for you. And it'll be even too much for you to hold alone. It'll require a testimony of praise that you give over and over and over again to anyone who asks because you need some help handling the baskets of what you've picked up from what God's done in your life. You still holding it? Don't, do not move it, friends. Do not move it. See, some of you are still looking at the problem. You're still looking at the challenge and the need, and you're going, I don't know how you're going to do that, God. Some of you are going, I, I know what the numbers read on the ledger, and they don't equal that. I know the bandwidth of, of my schedule and my calendar, and it's not there. What does God say? Well, he's going to tell you to, to offer it. And to give thanks. And then serve it up for where he leads you to apply it. And watch him work. And what he's going to do is he's going to teach you more about yourself. He's going to teach you more about him. That you might be able to worship him with a greater awe. And just an overwhelming sense of his presence. Of his goodness. Of his grace. Of his power. Of his majesty. And a deeper intimacy of truth. This is God. This is how he works. That's how he wants to work in your life. No matter how God works in your life. Take time to pick up the crumb so you can see him work. And give him glory. Give what you have in faith that God gave it to you, and apply it to what he's told you to do. Then trust that he will take care of the rest. The gap, the gap between that big problem and that big need and that woefully insignificant resource, however far those two may be apart, that's called the gap. And what I want you to know is Jesus is telling you today, I've got you in the gap. I've got you. I'll cover it for you. Isn't that what Jesus has already done on the cross for us? In the separation between us and God? In the debt that we owe to Him in sin? And the, 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 the wage that we really earn for ourselves. And Jesus says, I've got you. I want you to learn who I am. And the first lesson you need to know is I've got you. God demonstrates his power to grow our knowledge of him so we can worship him in greater awe of glory and intimacy of truth. God is always working to grow our worship of his glory. Go to verse 14 with me. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself friends there are some that always don't do well on a test and then there are others that just abysmally flunk it all the way 
And that's what happens here. You see, what happens in John 6, 14 and 15 is we see the expectation that the masses had put upon Jesus out of their understanding of Passover. And they understood that the Messiah was going to come in and set up an earthly kingdom. That kingdom was defined by their needs. It was defined by their wants. It was defined by their own good without real consideration for God's will and God's purpose in the midst of this. And what does it tell us? It tells us that Jesus would have nothing to do with it. You see, God's not flattered by our compliments when we offer him or call him something less than God. They said, oh, this is a great prophet. Great prophet. And with all the respect that they may have had for that, that was not the same as who Jesus really was. Jesus is God, and he is either worthy of all of our worship, or he will accept none of it. And that's why what you're holding today is so important, friends. It's so important. Let me give you the third life point today. Jesus works to build the kingdom of God, not to serve our demands or our kingdom's. You see, Jesus refuses those who want to use him to build their kingdom. We see this time and time again in Scripture. Here's three big ones. He defeated Satan in the wilderness because Satan wanted him to deny his own glory and give it to him. But he defeated Satan by citing the word of God and quoting it to him. He defeated the Jews who wanted to not only impose upon him a kingship that they understood, which is what the masses were trying to do here, but the Pharisees who were wanting to say something about him that was not true of him. He defeated them. He defeated the Roman rulers when in his own court case, they would question him and they would use bad information and bad witness and bad testimony against him and he would reject what they were saying and stand upon who he truly was. And listen, listen, he refuses to serve anyone that wants to use him for their own purposes without seeking his purpose, his will first. Jesus is not a toy to be played with. He is God. He is king to be worshiped and to be obeyed. Jesus opposes us for our own good every time we try to use him for our purposes. He works to demonstrate God's glory and he works to build God's kingdom, not ours. When we are not surrendered to God's will or to uh, God's way in our life, every step we take will only lead us further away from God. And listen, we will never catch Jesus when we're chasing him only to check off the items of our need, of our entertainment, or of our want list. When we give Jesus part of the glory and praise that he alone is worthy of, we'll miss the whole purpose of why he's working in our life. And that leads me to the third principle. Let me go ahead and give it to you, and then I'm going to read verses 16 to 21. Jesus works to build the kingdom of God, not serve our demands or kingdoms. Excuse me, we're moving to the fourth principle. Let me read 16 to 21. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They got into the boat, and they started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. Immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. See, problems and challenges 
are not our only tests. Actually, successes and victories test us as well. And we're never more susceptible to stealing God's glory than when we come off of or come out of a time of his greatest demonstration of power. That's what the disciples had just seen. Man, can you imagine the conversation getting into the boat? Like, I picked up three baskets. How many did you get? Well, I got two more, and then I handed them off, and then I went back and got a couple more. And I mean, the man, they're just, I mean, the adrenaline rush is just surging through them. And all of a sudden, they realize, hey, we're on the sea, and this storm is kicking up. It is dark right now. And, and, and I mean, it's just, have you ever stepped out of one problem into a whole big other storm of life? That's just the way life happens, right? And that's what was happening with them. We don't know uh, exactly what was taking place, whether they were upset with Jesus because he hadn't come to them yet. But we do know that they were likely going to a place where they knew they could meet up with him in time. And, and, and we know that the storm was significant because many of them were professional fishermen who were experienced on the seas, but this storm was managing to thwart their advancement and their forward movement. You see, the thing about storms in life is that they have a way of shaking us, of stealing our sense of security, of stripping from us our sense of stability. And then when you put darkness on top of the storm, it just multiplies the insecurity and the instability of life. So what does Jesus say to him? He comes to him and he says, it's I, do not be afraid. And here's what we see in the text when Jesus appears. He doesn't tell us the storm quit. He doesn't tell us they were close to land. He doesn't tell us anything. As a matter of fact, the problem that they were immediately faced with actually just disappears when Jesus comes near. It just goes away. Why? Because it wasn't present? No, because Jesus was present. You see, the presence of peace in our life is about a person being with us, not about the circumstances being right for us. And that's so important for us to remember about the presence of God. The fourth principle I want you to see is that Jesus comes near to those who trust in him to calm our fears and to fill our hearts with gladness. It has been said that the Bible commands believers 365 times, do not fear. One for each day of the year. Now, I don't know if it's true or not. I haven't counted them. I think that sounds good. It's definitely a command that we need to give much bandwidth too in our life but I can say this when you follow Jesus you can always be confident that he is near because he always draws near to believers to calm our fears and to fill our heart with gladness God seldom works in the way we want him to work friends God seldom works in the way that we think he should work especially when we find ourselves in the midst of problems hardships, needs, or challenge. But God always works in this way to bring our good when he is glorified as God. God always works to bring us into a deeper understanding of his work, to bring us into a deeper understanding of his way, to bring us into a deeper understanding of his will, to bring glory to himself. Because he is more interested in intimacy with you than being impressed by you. God's not worried about what you can do for him. He's worried about being with you. That's what he's focused on. Jesus comes near to those who trust in him to calm our fears and to fill our heart with gladness. Jesus entrusts himself to those who believe in him and receive him 
as Lord. Will you look to him first this morning? Let's pray.